I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. I think we're really having to question our values and ethics. And I think at a time like this, when we are faced with thoughts around our own mortality, we start to think about uh, ethics of the people that we engage with, the companies that we buy from, the people that we interact with, who we respect. There's a little bit of a return to what my dad would call old-fashioned values. Dystopian futures, post-apocalyptic scenes, pandemics. From Richard Matheson's I Am Legend to Steven Soderbergh's Contagion, our love for a world without order is evident. But actually living in a world where order has begun to fall apart? Well, amid the coronavirus outbreak, it looks like we're really struggling to come to terms with it all. So how does the reality of our reaction to such an earth-shattering pandemic differ from fiction? And what can we as writers learn for future novels, films and television shows from the way in which everything is actually playing out? Setting the scene and diving into this topic with me today is Christian Hunt, a keen student of human risk and behavioural science. Chapter 1. Why are we all behaving the way we are? Given the current circumstances, Christian and I are recording today's show remotely. Always want to look for a silver lining, this lockdown is providing writers the perfect moment to begin putting pen to paper, or fingers to keyboard. But before we get straight into the potential for learning here, I want to find out exactly why people are going to such extremes, from stockpiling and panic buying, to ignoring government advice to stay indoors. Let's start with with a basic thing that we all know, which is none of us likes being told what to do. And you, you can go back to childhood and any of your listeners that have kids will recognise this dynamic immediately, right? So if you want your kids to wear a coat, if you say to them, you've got to wear your coat, that naturally creates a rebellious instinct in them. So there is a way that you can alleviate that, which I think reveals quite a lot about the human psyche, which is if rather than saying you must wear your coat, If you say it's obviously cold outside, so you're going to want to wear a coat, which coat would you like to wear? You will find them magically far more compliant than if you tell them to wear a coat. And and, and the strange thing is, even if they were intending to wear a coat anyway, being told what to do doesn't sit nicely with us. So we have to give people a sense of agency and control. And I think one of the challenges, and we've all been in situations where somebody has been telling us to do something we don't like or don't agree with, we just rebel against it. And the reason that we rebel against that is that we like to have control in our environment. We are programmed to try and understand, to control, and to know what's going on. So the moment somebody interferes with that and we have a sense of losing our own ability to control our destiny, we push back against it. So a huge amount of what we're seeing at the moment is people just going, screw you, I'm not going to be told what to do. Combined with that, I think, is the fact that clearly a lot of these activities are social activities, right? I mean, you can go and sit in a pub on your own, um, but in these particular, what's the, there will be no point in going to sit in the pub on your own if you could sit at home on your own. So people are going to meet other people. There is something called social proof that we take, we, we're social animals and we take comfort from doing what other people do. So if you see lots of other people doing it or lots of people inviting you along to something, it kind of feels okay. Explanation for that is evolutionary because in the old days when you were being chased by animals across the savannah, uh, it made sense to do what other people did because if you were the outlier, you would be literally taken out by whatever it was that was there. So it made a lot of sense to just copy what other people do. And we, we do that quite a lot in terms of, you know, that's why restaurants have seat people near the window so that it looks like it's full. Nightclubs build artificial queues outside them so that people can have a sense of, well, there's a lot of people queuing. It must be worth doing. So we copy what other people do. So if you just combine those two things, you've got authority figures telling you not to do something, which encourages you to do the opposite in many cases. 
cases. You've got a load of other people doing it, so it's not weird to do it. And then the final piece, I think, is that you look at it and say, look, if it really were that bad, they would have banned it because the government's very good at banning all sorts of other things. So if you look at the controls around cigarettes, around alcohol, we're constantly having things prohibited that, that we might wish to do. And so there is a very simple thing is we are conditioned to just, you know, being told what to do in certain instances. So when we're not having it physically stopped, we kind of think it's okay. What harm could it possibly do? If it was really that serious, they would have banned it. So there's these sorts of dynamics that are at play and a whole host of other ones that basically tells you controlling and influencing human behavior is not simply a case of telling people to do something. You've got to think more broadly and understand the drivers behind it. So, I mean, that sounds very much like herd instincts. As social creatures, we seek either validation or support or comfort or indeed reinforcement from those around us. If we see people doing the same things that we are, that gives us comfort. If we see things different to what we're doing, we might start to question stuff. Do you think we are preconditioned as human beings to seek that kind of validation from what we see in the world? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, look, it comes, it comes, I always, I always like pinning things back to evolution. I mean, there's, there's this challenge around this, but it sort of makes conceptual sense. It's easy to understand. And, you know, we operated in, in tribes, we used to support each other so that you knew if you were out, if you were a lone wolf on your own, the likelihood of you surviving is much less than if you're in a group of people that can help protect you, that can feed you, look after you when you're ill and vice versa. So these basic concepts play into a sort of survivalist instinct. And I think, you know, when we don't know what to do, we turn to other people. So good example, you go to a foreign city. If you don't know which restaurants to go to, there's a nice kind of shortcut there, what we call a heuristic, which is, well, I'll have a look and see where the locals mm. eat. And the benefit of going where the locals eat is you'll get an authentic experience. You're unlikely to be ripped off. You're unlikely to be poisoned. And it's a better call than going somewhere that, that possibly you know is attracting tourists, where the prices might be higher, uh, where the food quality is not as good. It's less authentic. So there's good reasons that we use those pieces. And therefore, if you have a choice between a restaurant that is empty and a restaurant that is full, weirdly, even if it takes you longer to get into the restaurant, you'll, you'll kind of take comfort from the fact lots of people eating here must be okay. No one eating here. Something a bit weird with the place that no one's going to. And so we rely on each other to fill in the gaps when we don't necessarily know ourselves. So we're heavily dependent on our own experience. And that drives a lot of our decision making. But we will copy other people because, frankly, that's a pretty safe bet. They probably know something we don't, goes the theory. And so we'll, 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 we'll kind of borrow their expertise and knowledge if we don't have it ourselves. Now, that's brilliant when we're copying people that are doing the right thing and being sensible. It can also play out when we copy bad people. And we know what happens when you get in with the wrong crowd and you are influenced to do things that you wouldn't normally do. So I think we, we're hugely reactive to what we see other people doing for good and for bad. And we rely on that in the absence of our own personalized experience. And we will even challenge our own personal experience if we see lots of other people doing things that we're not. We'll at least ask the question, well, why aren't we copying? And is that why we're all stockpiling toilet roll at the moment? Is, is it the same <laughs> science that, that drives that kind of behavior? Yeah, so I think I think there's several there's several factors at play here, and this this won't be the complete list. Um, the first one on the on the toilet rolls is people want to feel like they're in control of the situation. So this pandemic is here. I need to I need to do something. What can I do? Well, the answer is you know going to the toilet feels like something that is potentially unpleasant, and therefore buying toilet roll feels like a sensible purchase. There's no you know there's it, you don't want to run out of it. 
The second thing is that we're noticing other people doing it. So the media are reporting this, they're talking about it. So that feeds more of the frenzy because everybody else is buying it. There's scarcity in toilet rolls. And I, why don't I copy everyone else at the same time? Chapter two, developing minor characters. During this pandemic, you'll have seen a major shift in perspectives in terms of how we view minor characters. In fiction, the storylines and personalities of minor characters need to be fully developed, rich and thorough, because the reader or the audience will know immediately if they've only been created to serve the main plotline or another character's dramatic arc. What we're seeing now, in real life, is people who we'd usually consider minor characters coming to the fore as frontline heroes, whether that's medical staff, delivery drivers, or even supermarket checkout assistants. We're redefining what it means to be an essential worker. So my question is, are we seeing a fundamental change in what we as society believes is important to us? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because the the you know if you look uh, at the sort of the phraseology that's come out of certain politicians where we talked about low skilled workers and the look at the amount of money some of these people get paid look at the nature of you know things like zero hours contracts where you have yeah. none of the kind of social security blankets and support mechanisms that traditional employees have that have allowed companies like Amazon to grow big very, very quickly, right? They can scale up without having big fixed costs. You don't have to pay people for holidays. You don't have to pay people if they don't work for you. you know, Uber's another example. You've had all these, this, this economy built, a gig economy built up around this dynamic. And what we're now seeing is that those people are fulfilling really critical services and doing critical things in a way that other people who always thought they were, you know, masters of the universe, bankers always describe themselves as masters of the universe. Well, not every right. banker, but, you know, a lot right. of them thought about themselves as we're really important because we're helping to. And the sort of nonsense that would come out about, you know, what do you do? I work in a bank. I'm helping, you know, I'm helping the industry of, you know, build itself up. But actually, you're not doing something that's that's critical that we really need. We can survive without that. We can't survive without people delivering us food to supermarkets. We can't survive without people working in the fields. We can't survive without, you know, basics or transport workers. So I think it's really interesting where we're seeing the, the value of some people has not been reflected in the amount of money they earn, has not been reflected in the way that society has sought to look after them. And I think those chickens are coming home to roost now as we recognize that, you know, who really matters here? And a whole host of us and, you know, present company included as, as I am, you know, are doing things that are nice to have and they're beneficial, but they're not critical and they're not mission critical. And I think we're really getting back to realizing who's valuable and who's not. And the disconnect between how society has rewarded people, both in terms of money, but also in terms of status. I think we're going to see a real shift in. And so you're right, people that were doing peripheral things who are often looked down upon are the very people that we need to keep the machine running. And that's a massive realization. And you see, you know, it's interesting to see kind of right-wing governments here in the UK as an example, really starting to recognize that and where the language is changing. You know, low-skilled workers are becoming key workers and critical workers. And just that shift in itself tells you a lot, let alone some of the economic changes we're seeing. Yeah, it's interesting. If I if I kind of think back to, um, I mean, we're in the first year of a of a new decade, and you know the twenties are back, and I, I thought that that might be a really 
cool things because everybody loved the 20s but when you actually analyze it and you think about what the, what the 1920s brought us if we go back like 100 years we had the end of um the end of the the great war as it was known then and then we had um two years of spanish flu in which you know pretty much five percent of the world's population was completely wiped out and you roll the clock forward by almost a decade and you have the great depression it's astonishing to reflect on the fact that the creative output of the 1920s was so extraordinary. You had the likes of T.S. Eliot, James Joyce, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Hemingway, all writing and working incredible stories that really, typically, if there were a theme that dominates that decade, a hundred years ago, it was about decadence and the collapse of the American dream. Uh, And it was really a statement about the world. I would like to think that if we were to roll the clock forward um, by another 100 years, people would look back on creative output from the 2020s and reflect that just sort of that change in perspective of how we view people and what we deem as being important. Because the people that do, you know, check you out of a supermarket or deliver the food to your door, that is now front and center in terms of being almost, you know, it's, they're not first first responders, but they are critical to keeping things going. So do you, do you think there is a sense of those sorts of roles changing, not just politically, but societally in terms of how people view the importance of the person that delivers food to your front door? Because if you can't go out, you are heavily reliant on those sorts of people now. Yeah, and I think people have, have certain people have taken money to be an, uh, a, you know, a way of isolating themselves, right? So you see, if you look at the rich and famous, they live behind gated properties in exclusive areas. They take themselves out of physical danger. They take themselves out of uh, potentially emotional, social danger, as they might see it. And so I think there's been this sort of distancing. And I think it's fascinating when you, you you know everybody is starting to realize how dependent we are on these people. And I think that is going to shift around respect for what jobs people do and the roles that they play in society. I think people are waking up and realizing. And one of the challenges, I think, of the digital world, but also of the things like just-in-time distribution networks, is, is we don't see the frailties that are behind the system. We kind of see you know, what's delivered to us is we go to a supermarket and there's food available. We can download things whenever we want to. And, you know, I, I mean, I've had a simple thing where my my Internet's been down for a few weeks and it feels like it's a disaster. You know, it's just like I can't get older. I, I, I'm, I'm a nervous wreck when I can't get my digital fix. Now, some of that's because it's, it's relevant to business, but some of it's just I'm so used to that and I'm used to be able to getting news and I'm used to be able to getting entertainment and I'm used to be able to, to go shopping that way and to take that away from me you know, feels quite alien. And I think a lot of the things is we don't realize quite how fragile some of the underlying pieces of society are. And we've pushed it to the max and and some of the sort of political themes around austerity and these dynamics have hidden, uh, you know, a lot of challenges. And, we, and we're now seeing, I think, the result of some misguided thinking by politicians, by individuals. And, and you know, I'm not just criticizing other people. I haven't really thought about it before. And I think we're, we're starting to think about our own mortality in a slightly different way. So there's a lot of a lot of challenges here to to what we thought we had mother nature nailed down and we saw that you know with the fires in Australia uh, this is an even starker example that that's not that's not happening 
And so, so I think we're really having to question our values and ethics. And I think at a time like this, when we are faced with thoughts around our own mortality, we start to think about uh, ethics of the people that we engage with, the companies that we buy from, the companies that employ us, the people that we interact with, who we respect, who we don't respect. Um, it's been very interesting watching. I think the volume of celebrity comment on the news has gone down. Uh, you know, as people have noted that they're not quite, I mean, there's still out there, there's people bloviating that don't know what they're talking about, but there's a lot, there's been a reduction of that. And I think there is a focus on, on looking at trusted voices. So we, there's a little bit of a return to what my dad would call old fashioned values. Chapter three, the bad guys. Despite all the panic buying and stockpiling, we are seeing many, many positive stories, people battling through adversity thousands volunteering to help our medical staff and people bringing care packages to elderly neighbours. But as with any story, there are bad guys, profiteering from the chaos. What can we as writers learn about the archetypal bad guy or villain in all of this? Will society judge those profiteering from this situation harshly? Will we remember long into the future how certain people behave during this time? Uh, two thoughts on it. On the one hand, we have a tremendous capacity to forget stuff. Right. And, and if you take a, a sort of simple example that, that, you know, people, I hope not too many of your listeners have been involved with, but if you've been involved in a traffic accident or you've had a medical emergency of sorts, you will be much more wary and much more cautious after that point. So you'll drive a bit more carefully if you were involved in an accident or you've seen one. Um, yeah. You know, if you've had a medical scare, you might eat more healthily, do more exercise. But, but the evidence that we have from that is that it does erode over time. And that many people go back to their old ways and go back to former habits in a way that suggests we, 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 we don't learn those particular lessons. This, on the other hand, is so massive that I would like to think that we would. And I think there's a lot more in the way of, of, of ways of memorializing behavior that we didn't have before. So previously, it would have been my memory. Now I've got social media, I've got video. There's a whole host of things there that will help build the collective memory. And, and I genuinely think, you know, I'm looking at businesses very differently. I've had certain suppliers of mine that are just being fantastic and bending over backwards and being incredibly, just doing the right thing. And you can see other people who are just being, you know, this is an opportunity to make more money. And there was a, there was a really interesting piece that I saw yesterday, which was a recording of a Wall Street analyst who was asking a pharmaceutical company whether the virus represented an opportunity to put prices up. And wow. the, the CEO responded in the way that you would like them to respond, which is, we don't see it like that. We, we see this as an opportunity to do the right thing, do good things and help society. And what I thought was really horrific was the fact the question was asked. And it tells you something about the mindset of, and it's not just a Wall Street criticism, but I'll pick on them for fun. But it shows you the fact the question was phrased in that way demonstrates they weren't even thinking in those terms. And, and of course, there's a legitimate way to ask the question. You could say, you know, is, are you thinking about increasing your prices would be a neutral way of asking it rather than, rather than pushing right. it as an agenda. It was a very leading question. And I think there's some interesting things there that demonstrate that some people still don't get it. And it probably won't surprise many of your listeners that banks are up there with some of the worst people. You know, some of the banks are behaving appalling this time, but some of them are behaving fantastically well. And I would like to think that there will be uh, an interesting sort of social pressure in the same way that you saw after the Second World War, where people that had collaborated 
with the the enemy and done bad things, you know, there was a longer term memory there. So I'd like to believe that because of the collective memory that we have, because of the way this stuff is being communicated at the moment, that these things will turn out right. But as we know, we can dream a, a, a sort of fantasy scenario that we'd like. The reality is going to be much more complicated. And there are going to be people that get away with it. And there are going to be people that are hold, held to account at the end of it. It's it's fascinating. I have just one final um, question or topic I'd like to to touch on. Um, if if we think about writers writing, you know, stories uh, like this, particularly in the um, what will the new world be like when this is all over? If we were to go uh, and push the boundaries and say, look, we're in a you know a post apocalypse dystopia, there are several tropes of those. Um, types of stories, which is people completely re-baseline their approach to risk. As a student and a, um, a keen um, observer of behavioral science in human beings, is it fair to say, and I've always wondered uh, about this, is it fair to say that if you introduce something like a safety enhancement or you tell people that this is for their own um, particular good, whether it be seatbelts in cars, whether it be um, assisted braking, whether it be, you know, road signage that says, you know, slow down. Do you think that we are encouraged as human beings to take more risks if we believe something is safer is the first part of the question. And secondly, if you then remove any notion of how risky it is and let people self-regulate, is it likely that they will actually switch on and go, wait a minute, I'm just going to kind of reassess here. I'm going uh, I'm to I'm sort of work out whether things are as risky as they say. Does that, does any of that make sense? First yeah. Of all? yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, and and, and un unfortunately, there's not a helpful single answer to this question. But let's start with the sort of um, people take more risk when it feels safer. There is no question about that. And so there's something called the helmet paradox, which comes from cycling. And they've done various experiments. So force cyclists to wear helmets, people take greater risk because it gives them a sense of comfort. Sure. Every time there is a safety enhancement to vehicles, seatbelts being an example, airbags being another, ABS being another, if that is trumpeted, people start to think, oh, well, they've made this activity safer, so I can compensate by taking more risk as a result. So, so that absolutely happens. And it's something we really have to watch because, you know, again, we know this from childhood, right? It's, it's sort of the world feels safe because you don't know any better. And so one of the things that, that you know, you, you see parents being told is let your kid fall off their bicycle so they know what it's like, so they know where the limits are. Right. Because if you, if you constantly catch them, there's going to be a time where you're not there to catch them and, and they're not going to know that that can happen. And so, so that points to the second piece that you were talking about, which is sort of to say, you know, if we force people to think for themselves, does that mean automatically that they're more careful? In some cases, that does. And there are things that have been introduced that allow people a sense of freedom. And you see, you know, remove some traffic is a great example. Remove some of the kind of signage and road markings. And there are examples of roads where people go a little bit more slowly because they can't see. You've made it feel, you know, they have to think for themselves. And therefore, they are making risk assessments based on not what they've been told by someone else to think, i.e. a speed limit they've been told by someone else to follow or a part of the road to drive on, but actually they have to work it out for themselves. And that does that does in some instances make people more cautious. So that's a, that's a good thing. But there are other examples where people just become reckless because they don't really see the full extent of the risk or understand it. So the answer is we have to calibrate that according to the individual situation. And we have to be very careful around whether that that works or doesn't and and you know of course make the average cyclist is safer when they're wearing a helmet 
So to a certain extent, if you were to say, well, we're not going to we're not going to make helmets compulsory because that makes people take more risk. It may be better for society to say we have to accept the fact that we make it safer and there's increased risk. But overall, we're protecting more people with that with that with that piece. And so it's a really, really tough dynamic to manage. But the other thing to think about is 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 a sort of there's something called the fence paradox, which I find fascinating, which says if you limit people by regulation, and this could be limiting banking, this could be limiting speed limits, could be could be any sort of form of, of, of peace. What often happens is everybody goes up to the limit because they assume that you have safely calibrated that limit and therefore it's okay to go up to the limit, maybe even a little bit over it. And what happens is if that limit's been set wrongly, think about it as a fence on the edge of a cliff. If that fence isn't strong enough and everybody's pushing up against the fence, the whole lot goes over the cliff because everybody is acting up into that, that, that rule. So the answer to this thing is we need to have a series of measures. Sometimes we need to let people have a sense of the risk they're taking. Sometimes we want to keep them well away from it. And you know, sometimes we need to do a, a, a hybrid piece, all of which points towards human behavior is really difficult to control and we need to understand the underlying motivation. And you don't get that answer by asking people because often they don't know why they do things. So answer is yes, but it's really complicated and we need to think carefully. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why dystopian fiction is so popular uh, and such a, a, an attraction for both audiences and writers. If you take people with fundamentally different belief systems and put them into a situation in which laws as we knew them are no longer applicable and we have to find our own way in the world, those belief systems will butt against each other and there'll be conflict. And where there's conflict, there's drama and story. I wonder whether it's as simple as that. I, that makes a lot of sense, right? And and I think it's sort of one one needs to stress test these things, right? It's not particularly interesting having a world where you know, let's just say it's illegal to murder someone, and sort of you know the the majority of people will will kind of think that's that's okay uh, as a as, as a rule. You're not you're not really stress testing human behavior. You'll you'll you, you find you need to have some people that will cross the line and who are who think murder is okay, or maybe you give them a reason. But that makes it quite. If you can bring that ground where you've got something that people are up against, a rule, a norm, uh, a dynamic, you 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 get into the realms of sort of much more interesting character traits and much more interesting behavioral analytics that I think makes for better drama. So I think you're right. I think if you take things that are uncontroversial, you have to then make the people slightly controversial, make them think differently. If you can move it, if you can shift the norms a bit and shift the, the, the underlying dynamics, it's probably more fertile ground because it's you don't have to stretch too far on the behavioral front to get something interesting. Wonderful. Christian, thank you very much. Uh, in the spirit of storytelling, maybe we should do this again in 28 days later and see what the state of the world <laughs> is, is actually very like. But for now, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Christian. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Christian Hunt for joining me on the podcast. So to recap, what have we learnt? We're probably behaving erratically during this pandemic for a range of reasons. We don't like being told what to do. We like to follow the crowd and copy their actions, rebellious or otherwise. And the limits on what's safe weren't set quickly enough. The way we view life's minor characters is shifting, and we're beginning to realise what is truly important to us. And the bad guys in this situation are those profiteering from the chaos, and it's likely their actions will be burned into our collective memories, particularly through social media and the internet. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook, at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really, really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.